Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, open your Bibles, please, to the book of First Peter. We are in chapter 4 now, nearing the end of our study of this New Testament book. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. First Peter 4, 12 through 19. <clears throat> You know, we're almost through January here, so um, I wonder how all, your, all of you are doing with your New Year's resolutions. Uh, this is about the time that some of us start to lose enthusiasm for those New Year's resolutions, and they start to kind of get pushed to the side. Uh, perhaps some of you have had some New Year's resolutions of a spiritual nature. Maybe you've tried to commit yourself to praying better. Or maybe to being prepared to share your faith better. Or maybe prepared to memorize scripture better in 2015. But I wonder how many of you thought, uh, here's a resolution to set out for 2015. I want to learn to suffer better. Did anybody set that out as a New Year's resolution? I want to be... Prepared. I want to be better prepared for whatever sufferings God brings into my life in 2015. I want to meet that in faith and glorify and honor Christ in the way that I deal with that affliction. That's a worthy resolution. That's a worthy goal for any Christian to set forth. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here this morning. You've probably noticed there's been the theme of suffering going through our service Um, but my responsibility is to preach to you and declare to you what the Bible says, and as we go through 1 Peter, one passage at a time, particularly here in chapter 4, we're finding that suffering is a very common theme, and Peter hits it pretty hard here in verses 12 through 19, and he speaks to us about how to suffer well. How to suffer well, and that's the topic of the message this morning. Now, there's different kinds of suffering that we can endure. We heard from Job earlier. Job was a man who suffered, as Adam said, the loss of his uh, family and belongings. There's uh, suffering that comes from natural disaster. There's financial difficulties that we endure. We have health problems. We grieve the loss of loved ones, and those are all legitimate forms of suffering that are in need of the grace and tender care of God and God's people. But to be clear, I think what Peter has in mind in this passage is not so much those kinds of sufferings, but more the suffering that we endure as a result of being a Christian. The suffering, the hostility, the stress, the loneliness, the alienation, the the abuse emotionally, psychologically, maybe physically that we might suffer just because we call Jesus our Savior and Lord. That's what Peter has in mind here primarily. Now, this is something that is a little unusual for us as Americans. We're not used to, in this country, suffering really that much in the way of persecution because of our faith. Christianity has been largely accepted Over the course of the history of our nation, it has had a position of privilege in our culture. But as I've been pointing out to you from time to time as we've gone through 1 Peter, that is changing. 
And we in this country are moving into a period of time where the church is no longer occupying a position of privilege. Christianity is no longer easily recognizable by typical person in our culture. We are becoming a people who are increasingly peculiar in the eyes of our culture. And as a way of <clears throat> showing you what I mean, this is the New York Times from December 22nd, two years ago, opinion piece where the writer says, the Christian consensus that long governed our public square is disintegrating. The temple of my personal opinion may be the real established church in modern America. Things are changing. And so this passage, as we go through this, you might be thinking a little bit, I don't know, this doesn't really uh, apply to me. I think we're just kind of on the cusp. This passage is, is speaking to us in a place where I think we're a, a little ahead of the curve in the sense that I think this will be a lot more relevant to us in the coming years. And so I would say I'm really grateful that we have a lot of young people in this church. And so I would say children and high school students, college students in particular, I think you need to pay real close attention to this. Um, I had a conversation with Brandon Buller, who was our formal music director. He was here over Christmas, and we got to talking about this subject. And I said to Brandon, you know, Brandon, I, I really don't think that I'll probably have to go to jail for being a Christian but you might. Brandon's in seminary at Westminster thinking about being a pastor. I, I really don't think I'm going to jail, but future generations might. And we need to think about this. We need to be prepared. We need to get ready as a people to suffer well. And that's what this passage is about. So um, if you have that, let's stand, and I'll read First Peter 4, verses... 12-19. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, by your spirit, teach us, instruct us, and encourage us as your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. It's interesting that um, although as a culture, the things that Peter writes here might seem a little bit foreign to me, I, I've read that in the nation of Indonesia, which is largely a Muslim country, very small minority of Christians who suffer some persecution there, First Peter is the favorite book for Christians in Indonesia. 
because it speaks to, to their situation. And I think uh, speaks to uh, what could be our situation. But you know, persecution and affliction happen in a number of different ways. It's not like you, you have to be burned at the stake to suffer persecution. It happens in a lot of different ways. So I think this is relevant. Uh, to many of us right now. So there's four things here that Peter gives us about how to get ready to suffer well for, for Christ. Four things. And the first thing is this, very simple. Uh, verse 12, don't be surprised. When suffering comes upon you, when, when you feel alienated or pushed aside because you're a Christian, don't be surprised at that. Um, there, there tends to be this message in some parts of the church, in, in some traditions, that, that kind of sends this message that, that Christianity is all about just no problems, um, health all the time, lots of money and riches. If you just believe and you just do the best you can, then God's going to make your life smooth sailing. And if there are troubles in your life and there is suffering in your life, well, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, in the prosperity gospel um, churches and traditions, you kind of get that idea. You know, if you're suffering, it's probably because you're not, you know, you're not living the victorious Christian life. You're not exercising enough faith. And if you are suffering, that that, that is, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a strange thing. But what Peter says here is, in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. What Peter is saying is, if you're suffering for the name of Christ, that's not strange at all. That's ordinary. That's to be expected. You should count on it, Christian. You should count on it. I mean, this goes a long way, I think, to help us get ready for suffering if we're expecting that it's probably going to happen. So, <clears throat> students, you're in class and the professor is talking about his or her atheistic points of view. You look around, you notice that you're about the only Christian in the class, and all the other students are going right along with the professor as they're discounting the validity of the Christian faith and making fun of it or whatever they might be doing. Don't be surprised when that happens. Or you look at the news and you see atheist groups getting together and they're complaining about nativity scenes being on the front lawns of a county courthouse and they're trying to eliminate all traces of Christianity at the public square. Don't be surprised when you see that happen. We go through the holidays and people are offended that we say Merry Christmas because it has the word Christ in it and there's this attempt to eliminate Christ from the holiday season. We have to say Happy Holidays for fear that we're going to offend somebody. Are you, are you really surprised that that's happening? You're a Christian, you're talking to somebody, you're telling them that Jesus is the way to get to heaven and he's the only way actually to get to heaven and you get a frown in response to that and you're called a narrow-minded, self-righteous bigot because you hold to that view. Are you really surprised? Does that seem strange to you? It's, it's not. It's not strange. The reason is because... Satan and the evil powers of this universe are frustrated and angry when the gospel advances and Satan wants to do everything he can to retard that influence. 
Unbelievers in the world are said in the book of John to be people who love darkness and hate the light. They don't like it when their sins are exposed. We know that creation is groaning under the bondage of a fallen world. These are the effects of living in a sin-stained world. And so it shouldn't surprise us. It might seem like a harsh judgment. I'm not trying to be cynical or negative. I'm just wanting you, along with Peter here, to think rightly about the world in which we live. So don't be surprised. That, that will help you. When the suffering comes, you'll say, ah, yeah, Pastor Bob told me about that. Peter told me about that in 1 Peter 4. So that's the first thing, to kind of get you ready to suffer well. Secondly, consider it a privilege. Consider it a privilege to suffer for Jesus. Now, again, as we go back to the way we process and try to interpret the suffering in our lives, I think some of us, when we suffer, prosperity gospel kind of sends us one message. Personally, when we suffer, we might draw some conclusions like, hmm, I wonder if God is mad at me. I must have done something wrong. Um, maybe God is not a God of love like I thought. Maybe He's a God of hatred and anger entirely, and He has no love for me. Maybe, maybe there is no God, and I'm just living in a world that is just a random, haphazard processes of evil and suffering and injustice, and maybe there's just nothing to be done about it. Those are some of the conclusions sometimes we draw when, when we suffer. But what Peter says here is, no, in verse 13, he says this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What Peter seems to be saying here is that if you're suffering, and in particular suffering in a way that resembles the way Jesus has suffered, that that is something to be glad about. It's something to rejoice in. When you're sharing the sufferings of Christ, you know that when Christ lived on this earth, He was insulted, He was rejected, He was called various names, He was arrested, He was unjustly tried, He was put to death on a cross, He was executed, He was murdered. Those are the sufferings that our Savior has gone through for our salvation. And when we have the opportunity to go through those kinds of sufferings, what Peter is saying is rejoice in that. Now, <clears throat> I'll just tell you, that seems like a really hard command, doesn't it? You mean, I'm put in jail for my faith and I'm going to be glad about that? I, you know, right now I just think, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> but this is what Peter is commanding us to do. And this is partly because this is one of the purposes of our salvation, friends. When you think about being a Christian, why did you become a Christian? Probably most of you are going to say, well, to get my sins forgiven and to know that I'm going to heaven. And certainly, that's a good reason to become a Christian. And certainly, both of those are true. But do you know one of the main reasons that God saved you is not just to get you to heaven and to forgive you of your sins, but to make you like Jesus. That's what God is doing in your life, shaping you, molding you, conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, who is a suffering Savior. 
How are you going to be like Jesus if you don't suffer? That's, that's what Peter is saying here. That's why you rejoice. Oh, I'm called to suffer? Wow, that means God is shaping me into the image of his son and the purpose of my salvation is being executed and carried out in God's grace and in God's mercy. Here's what Calvin said. <clears throat> when you have set yourself frankly to follow Jesus Christ, you have not done so without being resolved to hold fellowship with him at the cross, since he has done us that honor to be crucified in us, to glorify us with himself. We think about being united with Jesus in his resurrection, and we will be and are, but we're also united with him at the cross. And that's what Peter's talking about here, sharing the sufferings of Christ. Perfect example of that is in Acts chapter 5 where we read about Peter, the same Peter who wrote this passage. Peter is with the apostles. They're preaching the gospel. The Jewish authorities are frustrated by that. They put them in jail. Finally, after some discussion, they decide to let them out. But before they let them out, they beat them. Peter is beaten. Peter is writing this having been beaten for being a Christian. That's something to keep in mind. He's been through the beatings and the suffering and the affliction. But in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they're released. And look what it says at the end of chapter 5. Then they, Peter and the apostles, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Peter's not just telling you to do that without having done it himself. He rejoiced. There's a story told of a, um, an early Christian martyr, a, a woman named Perpetua. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but maybe not. Perpetua. Uh, third century. She was a Christian, and so she was talking about Jesus, and she was arrested, and this was under the Roman Empire, and so as you might know, often the Roman authorities would throw Christians to the lions or to the animals in a big arena so that people could watch these Christians get killed by these wild animals. And this Perpetua was thrown to the animals, and she got hit by an animal, and her hair kind of came undone and spilled out. And apparently in that culture, or in her mindset anyway, loose hair for a woman was a sign of mourning. And she actually got up and said, let me tie my hair back together because this is not a day of mourning for me. This is a day of joy. And she's prepared to give her life for being a Christian. She considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ. That's what Peter's talking about here. That's what he's calling us to do. And I know probably you're thinking like me, I, I don't know if I can do that. And I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. But I do believe that God is faithful to enable us to do that. We'll actually talk about that more in a moment. But a couple of clarifications here as we consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ. A couple of clarifications. Um, one is this, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about suffering. I want to be clear that suffering itself is not a good thing. We've we got to be careful that we don't start 
trying to suffer or inviting suffering into our lives. That's not what Peter is teaching. If you look at verse 14, look what he says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, but not because an insult is in itself a good thing. We're not to go out and try to get people to insult us because insults are good. No, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's where the blessing is. The blessing is in the midst of suffering, not in the suffering itself. It's the occasion for God to work in an unusual way. That's what Peter is saying. When you're suffering, this spirit of the glory of God rests on you. That's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 11, which is known as a messianic prophecy pointing forward to our Savior, toward Jesus, on whom the Spirit rested. And the Spirit enabled Jesus to persevere going all the way to the cross. And the Spirit is the one who raised Jesus' body from the dead in His resurrection. And what Peter is saying is that same Spirit rests on you when you are suffering for Christ's sake. That same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is resting upon you. That, that's, that's the privilege. That's the thing to, to marvel at and be thankful for. Not necessarily the suffering, but what God is doing in the midst of the suffering. But the other clarification here is in verse 15. Because Peter goes on, and actually at the beginning of uh, verse 13, notice, let's go there first. Beginning of verse 13, rejoice, he says, in so far as you share Christ's suffering. You know, rejoice insofar as your sufferings, again, are tied to your profession of faith in Jesus. So go forward to verse 16, and he kind of clarifies this. And he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, no, excuse me, verse 15, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you've committed a murder and you're in jail, what Peter is saying here is that's not the kind of suffering that I'm saying is a privilege. <laughs> you know, you steal something and you go to jail, that's not the kind of suffering that we should consider to be a privilege. And this last word that is used here in verse 15 is, is suffering as a meddler, and that's just kind of an odd word <laughs> that's included. I mean, we can all understand murderer, thief, evildoer, and it's like, which of these does not belong? You know, meddler. I, I don't think of a meddler in the same category as I think of a murderer. <laughs> and so it's a little peculiar that Peter would include that in this list. So what is he doing here? Well, a meddler, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used, so it's a little bit hard to define, but we think it probably just means like a, you know, a, a busybody. Uh, somebody who is constantly... Um, injecting himself or herself into other people's affairs. So I, I think what Peter has in mind is the kind of Christian who is, you know, always judging people, always being critical of people, always kind of running surveillance on people to see how they're living and what they're doing, always challenging them on the movies they're watching and the clothes that they're wearing, are the kind of Christians who are just really kind of, you know, in your face about their faith. 
and they're always bringing it up no matter what the situation is. You have the peaceful Thanksgiving dinner, and there's the Christian who's trying to turn it into a big spiritual debate. The person who, just in a real tactless way, is manipulating and trying to push people or nag people into becoming a Christian. I think that's the kind of thing that Peter has in mind. You know, for example, if you're at work and you've got a turn or burn sign hanging on your cubicle, and every time in the lunch break you, you just are just talking about spiritual things all the time, you're always trying to mix it up. You're just always trying to be controversial. You're always trying to be confrontational. And then you find that people don't like you. People don't hang around you. People don't want to be near you. And then you say, hey, I'm just suffering for Jesus. I guess I'm just being persecuted here in the workplace. What Peter, I think, is saying is, no, you're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering because you're a meddler. You're suffering because you want to get into everybody's business. And that's not what God is calling you to do. So I think it's an important thing to do. If you're a person who is suffering for your profession of faith in some way, you might want to ask, reflect, am I suffering because of my identification with Jesus, or am I suffering because I'm just an irritating person? (laughs) Because I meddle in people's lives, I'm judgmental, and I'm pushy. There's a distinction between the two. So consider it a privilege to suffer for Jesus insofar as your suffering is tied to the sufferings of Jesus with a couple of clarifications in mind there, okay? The third thing that Peter says is remember the judgment of God. In verse 17, one of the ways we can suffer well is to have in view the fact that there is something called judgment in God's Economy. So look at verse 17. It says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So, what, what does Peter mean there? Um, it, it seems like what Peter saying, is saying is this it, it is time for judgment to begin. I think implied there is that judgment is beginning now, is what he's saying. When Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, he's saying, Judgment is beginning now. So that's something to kind of clarify. Peter's not just talking about the coming judgment. He's talking about a judgment that is happening now. So what does that mean? Well, go back to verse 12 and notice Peter's talking about a fiery trial, right? And he says this fiery trial has come upon us to to test us. We don't know specifically what this trial was for Peter's readers, but some kind of significant trial, suffering, is going on. And it's given to test Peter's readers. There's a test going on when we endure suffering. We're being tested. Now, what's the test? Well, think of it like this. If you're asked, are you a Christian, and you have absolutely nothing to lose by answering yes to that question, you're going to be inclined to perhaps say yes. I mean, unless you're committed to another religion or worldview, uh, you know, why not? I was brought up a Christian. Lots of other people are Christians. Sure, I'm a Christian. It's easy to say you're a Christian when saying you're a Christian brings with it no risk or possibility of loss. 
But if somebody asks you if you're a Christian, and to say yes to that question means you might lose your reputation, or you might lose your job, or you might lose your life, you're not going to be so anxious to say yes to that question unless you're really a Christian. You know, in North Korea, I read, Voice of the Martyrs, that the average life expectancy for a Christian who evangelizes in North Korea is three months. North Korean Christians know that if they're going to go public, that they're Christians, that they're going to die. Now, why would anybody in North Korea claim to be a Christian if he or she knew it was going to lead to that person's death unless that person really believed in Jesus. I mean, really had a relationship and loved Jesus more than anything in the world. That's, that's the test. So <clears throat> when Peter talks about judgment in verse 17, I don't think he's talking about a condemnation. I think most of the time we hear the word judgment, we just think condemnation. That, that's not what he means. This judgment that begins with the household of God is like a like an assessing, an assessment of the situation. That's the judgment. It's like a sorting out of humanity, a sorting out of who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't. Just like Matthew 25, the sorting out of the sheep and the goats. That, that's judgment. And that's the judgment that's happening here. And there's something about suffering, affliction, sorrow, and difficulty when it's brought into our lives that has a way of sorting out believers from unbelievers. And this begins, according to Peter here, with the household of God in the church. When we as Christians face various sufferings, the sincerity and reality and genuineness of our faith, or the falsity and the lack of genuineness of our faith, one of those others is going to rise to the surface when the suffering begins. So if you're feeling right now, you're in a position where you're feeling kind of pushed out, alienated, sorrowful, abused, neglected, lonely, persecuted for your faith. <clears throat> just hang on to Jesus. Just hang on to him, and it will be revealed that this is one of the ways that God is showing to the world that you belong to him, that you're the real deal. You are a Christian. And that's what Peter's talking about here. But then he moves at the end of verse 17. Judgment begins... <clears throat> the household of God, but then he turns his attention in the second half of verse 17 to outside the household of God, to, to unbelievers. And so he says, if it begins with us, this judgment, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved or saved with difficulty as other translations say, what will become of the ungodly? What's going to become of the sinner? I mean, if it's, if it's a hard life for the Christian, what's going to happen for the non-Christian? That's what Peter is saying. Now, now, let's stop for just a moment. Is it hard to be a Christian? I want to be very clear about this. Becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian is easy. <laughs> to God be the glory, the vilest offender 
who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. It's really that simple. It's easy to become a Christian, turn from your sin, trust in what Jesus has done, turn from your alleged good works and trust the work of Jesus, trust his shed blood, trust his resurrection, trust his work as sufficient for your salvation, put your hope in him, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're going to heaven, you're accepted before God. That's easy. Living as a Christian, that's hard. And that's what Peter has in mind here. There's something about the Christian life that can be very difficult. I'm sure those North Koreans who are professing Jesus would say it was easy to be saved, but it's hard to live in this culture anyway as a Christian. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Pastor Brian gave an excellent sermon months ago on uh, this same passage, explaining exactly what I'm talking about here. Living as a Christian can be hard. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He's saying in verse 18, if the righteous are scarcely saved, if it's, if it's hard for people to be Christians living in a fallen world, dealing with all kinds of suffering, then how much worse is it going to be for the unbeliever? How much worse is it going to be for the one who doesn't know Jesus? You think it's hard for Christians? Man, it's a lot worse for those apart from Christ. Here's what 2 Thessalonians says. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and His mighty angels in flaming fire. It's talking about the final judgment. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Here's one of the ways you can prepare to suffer well. You can think and reason to yourself, this is hard, what I'm dealing with, it's painful, but it's better than the alternative. It's better than spending an eternity in hell. There's a biography of George Whitfield, great preacher in the 1700s, and uh, there's a story of this guy named Howell Harris. And Howell Harris, he's in Wales and he's preaching. And they're out in this field and they're, they're preaching the gospel. And they're just suffering all kinds of abuse. This guy throws a big rock and hits Howell Harris right under the eye. And he has to go back to the inn and get himself fixed up and almost loses his eyesight. But he comes back and he continues <clears throat> to preach the gospel. He's on this platform, and there's a, a drunk guy who's trying to reach up and take him down, uh, pull him off the platform, but he avoids it, and he keeps preaching, and then here's how he described the, the situation. He says, we had continual showers of stones, walnuts, dirt, a cat, and a dead dog thrown at us. I was much afraid of the hurt on my eye, but the voice to me was, better endure this than hell. That, that was his way of persevering through this. I, I'm making a stand for Jesus. This is part of what it is to live for Jesus. This is hard now, but I'm so grateful for salvation, for freedom from the condemnation of God, for the future promise of eternal life with him in heaven. So remember the judgment of God. 
judgment sorting out true Christians from non-Christians, and also the judgment at the end of time when eternal pleasures will be ours when Jesus comes back for his people. One last thing, how to suffer well and trust yourself to God. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's the fear, I mentioned it earlier, and maybe a lot of you are having this, and I have this fear too. What, what if I can't hold up under the suffering and the persecution? I mean, what if in my weakness I deny Christ? What if my faith fails? Well, Peter gives us this command. Entrust yourself to God's will to a faithful creator. I think that word faithful is just so key there. A faithful creator, one who is is faithful. I think what Peter's getting at here is, here's the hope, here's the encouragement that we have, that God is a whole lot more faithful to us than we will ever be to him. Yeah, our faithfulness flags and wanes, but his faithfulness to us never flags and never wanes. And Peter, I think, again, can speak from experience because back in Luke chapter 22, Do you remember there's this story where Jesus comes and talks to Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has come, and he's asked to be able to sift you like wheat. He's asked to persecute you. He's asked to afflict you. And what Jesus says to Peter is, I want you to know that I've prayed for you, that your faith would not fail. I've prayed that your faith would not fail. That was Jesus' promise to Peter, and that's Jesus' promise to you, Christian. We have a Savior who is praying, interceding, that our faith would not fail in His resurrected body before the Father, living as our advocate, pleading with the Father that your faith and my faith would not fail. Jesus is the shelter in the storm that we're looking for. Jesus is the shelter in the storm that we need, friends. Jesus is the one who endured the storm of the cross. He's the one who has been vindicated in his resurrection. And Jesus is entirely sufficient to bear you through whatever suffering he brings your way. That that is the best way I know to suffer well. Keeping your eyes on Jesus, fixing your hope on the author of our salvation, knowing that he's interceding for his suffering saints. I have a shelter in the storm, and you do too, and it's an appropriate song for us to sing as we close. So let me pray before we sing. God in heaven, you are faithful, you are good, you have suffered in the person of your son, and we are grateful for your sufferings, and we simply plead and ask, help us, should you call us to suffer for you, help us to do it well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.